I would invite you to take your Bible and uh, turn with me again to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, the second chapter, our text, was read to you earlier in the service, and we are going to be focusing on verses 29 through 32 of that text. Actually, we're going to go through 35. Uh, that is known, this text is known as the Nunc Dimittis. And uh, as I announced to you at the beginning of December, uh, we've been taking these Sundays leading up to Christmas to study the songs of Advent. That is, these songs that different characters, different people in the Christmas story would sing. And we have record of these songs in poetic form, form in the first and second chapters of the Gospel of Luke. We began with Mary's Magnificat. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Last Sunday, we looked at Zechariah's song of praise, his Benedictus. And now this Sunday, we're going to be looking at Simeon's song, which is known in Latin as Nunc Dimittis, which means, now you are dismissing. All right, those are the first two words in the old Latin version of the translation of this song, which means, you can see it in your text, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, in peace. Now, this, uh, this theme is incredibly relevant to us today. Uh, I was looking at the news this morning, uh, and one of the headlines was what the Pope uh, delivered, I guess, in a Christmas Eve address last night about the lack of peace in the world today. Last Sunday, sitting about right here, there was a couple I hadn't met before. I didn't recognize them, and then after the service... Uh, I went out to the foyer there, and, and they were standing there, and they introduced themselves to me. Uh, and as soon as they told me their name, I recognized them and their name as being the parents of a friend of mine from college. His name is Sam. He passed away in May of 2021. He was 38 years old. That's how old I am now, so that kind of hits close to home. And he died of cancer. He left behind a wife of 14 years uh, a son and two twin daughters. And they, they came up to me, they were eager to meet me, for one, because I had known their, their son, Sam, and that was a, a connection that they wanted to make, but also because they wanted to tell me that what I had said in my sermon last Sunday about the joy of serving the Lord, remember we talked about this idea of, of serving Him all our days, this idea of serving the Lord, they said, what you said from that text was absolutely right. It is worth serving God all your days and beyond, because that's what our son did. Like he, he was a pastor, actually, and, and the diagnosis of his cancer uh, preceded a very rapid uh, decline in his health, but all the way to the very end, he was serving the Lord. And remember that word serve, we, we said it's not doing something for someone who needs something, but doing something because they deserve something and because God deserves all his praise. Remember, we talked about as long as we have breath, as long as we are able to breathe in and out, we are supposed to give praise and serve the Lord. That's what their son Sam did till his dying day. And then later on that week, so I think it was like Tuesday or Wednesday, I get an email from the dad. And uh, he's, attached to that email was a video that my friend Sam had recorded of himself it was about a 10-minute long video, and send it to his twin sister shortly before he died. So I open up the link, and there is Sam. Man, it's sobering to see a, a peer that you knew like 10, 15 years ago, looking all gaunt and decayed, striped hospital gown. You can see the, the IV tube. 
behind him. You could see him in his hospital bed. And there he is recording a video himself to send to his sister so he has something to tell her before he dies. And, and what he said, I wrote down a couple sentences. He said this, Becca, I want to share some things with you. They might make sense to you. They might not. He said, I'm doing great. God's grace is lavished on me. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm at rest. There's even, and he paused to kind of think through, and he smiled, there's even a strange joy that everything's going in the right direction. Now, I share that with you because there seemed to be um, an amazing coincidence between my meeting Sam's parents last Sunday and the text that weeks ago I had planned to preach to you on Christmas Day, and that is the testimony of a man who said, before he died, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. And the, the word peace there, it's, it's a Greek word, but behind that Greek word is the Hebrew concept of shalom. And shalom, as you know, is like a greeting, a Hebrew greeting. Shalom, it's a way of saying hi, but it is, it's more than just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of well-being and flourishing, just like my friend Sam said, I'm doing great and I have this deep sense that it's not just that I'm okay, but everything is moving in the right direction. This is a kind of a wholeness, a shalom. We find the word shalom, you can kind of hear it in some place, Hebrew place names, like Jerusalem, that is the city of peace. Jerusalem is a city of peace. It's, it's not just the absence of conflict, not just the ac- a- absence of anxiety. It's a, it's a whole person flourishing, and that's what Simeon is saying in this song. He's saying, Lord, now I get to die not in anxiety, not with a sense of inner turmoil or conflict. Now I get to die in shalom, in peace. That, that's this, the, the air that, that was exuded from my friend Sam in, the, in this video to his twin sister. He said, I'm going in peace. Everything is okay. Not just okay, but I'm actually doing great. And, and it's important for us to think about this because sooner or later, if our Lord tarries, every single one of us is going to have a day of our departure. Just like Sean was referring to in his testimony. Everyone else, every one of us in this room, if Jesus doesn't return beforehand, is going to meet the day upon which they die. Now you might say, Pastor, isn't this a kind of a depressing thing to talk about on Christmas morning? Give us a break. <laughs> it's Christmas. You're telling, you're telling us you're gonna, we're going to die. You know what? I actually couldn't think of a more joy-giving topic, and here's why. Have you ever heard the statement, you don't know how to live well until you learn how to die? Have you ever heard something like that? You don't really know how to live well until you know how to die. I think that's very true. Because as long as that that approaching day looms over us like a dark, cold shadow, our laughter and our parties are going to have this hollow, inauthentic ring to them. In fact, I... We, we kind of do this in our culture. We try to mask our, our sorrow. We, we try to distract ourselves from thinking deeply about where our lives are going and, and the, our, the fact that we're all going to die. We, we, die. We're, we try to mask that in so many ways. I was reading recently uh, a, a book to my kids in which uh, there was a, a record of a, there was a culture in, in Central America. Uh, uh, the natives there, they would have this, uh, this practice where someone would pass away. They're, the main, they're mourning the death of a child. And while some people are crying, you can hear them crying, other people come to this house of mourning to make jokes and laugh. And so the whole idea is to try to drown out 
the crying with laughter. And so in the same house, you have some people and they're sobbing and they're weeping and other people are just laughing. And it's kind of like a contest to see which can be louder, the laughter or the crying. It's almost like we do that in our culture, in our culture. But I can think of no better way to make certain that our laughter isn't hollow and tinny and inauthentic than to make certain that upon our day of death, our day of departure, we know that beyond there is a fountain of peace. And I believe that if we know that there is a fountain and spring of peace and joy, then that beyond the veil of death will tend to cascade into all our present days so that our laughter can be real and so that our parties can actually have real solid joy to them and not a foreboding sense of coming doom. That's why I say I don't think there could be a more joy-giving topic than thinking about this. Are we ready to depart in peace? Are we ready, like Simeon, to say, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, in shalom? So, if you want to understand peace, both now and then, we should be attentive to Simeon's song. And we're going to divide it this way, okay? Just like we typically do. Here's a preview. We're going to look at what Simeon saw and why it brought him peace, okay? What what Simeon saw and why what he saw brought him peace. Okay, first of all, let's look at what Simeon saw. Actually, notice in the context uh, how frequently the word see or saw came up, comes up. So in verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That's twice right there. And then now in verse, the third time in verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. So Simeon was promised, you're not going to see death until you see the Lord's Christ. And then, having held the baby Jesus in his arms, he said, Lord, now I'm, my eyes have seen your salvation. So, so to, to get some context here, so Simeon is apparently an older man, quite elderly probably because he's talking about his, his impending death. And he's, he's apparently also... No, no special guy. I mean, he's not, there's not any indication that he's a priest or of some royal family. He's not a dignitary of any sort. He's just a godly, uh, religious, deeply religious, deeply faith-filled man, spirit-filled man who is waiting for the promise of the anointed one, the Messiah. That's who he is. And he comes to the temple. He's, he's doing it in the Holy Spirit. Notice the recurrence of the word Holy Spirit in verse 25. The Holy Spirit was upon him. In verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Apparently, somehow, he had been given some assurance that he's not going to die before he sees the fulfillment of the promise that the Lord's Christ. Now, uh, be before we go into the detail on what Simeon saw, I just want to explain what this idea of the Lord's Christ means. So this is in verse 26. Uh, uh, 26 the Lord's Christ when you see the word Christ there that is translating the Hebrew word Messiah which means anointed one now an anointed one was one that had received oil upon his head as a symbol of God's spirit God's presence within him we've been talking about this in our Sunday class at 9 o'clock the past few weeks the anointed one, a prophet, priest, or king, is one with such a task, such a calling, that he, in order to do his task well, he really needs God's presence with him. A king, in order to rule well, needs to have God's presence within him to, make, to be able to make wise decisions. 
A priest needs to have God's presence within him to be able to mediate between God and humans. A prophet must have God's presence within him to be able to speak on the behalf of God. And so as a symbol of that presence, they have oil poured upon their head. But all that oil and all those prophets and priests and kings were just pointers to an ultimate one, someone who would come who would not be just have the symbol of God's spirit upon him, but the reality of God's spirit within him. That is one who fully was in possession of the Holy Spirit such that he could dispense God's spirit and God's presence to other people. So whoever that one would be, whoever that prophet, priest, and king would be, nobody knew, but they were anticipating him to come. And God gives a promise to Simeon and says, you're not going to die until you see the Lord's Christ. That is the one whom the Lord has anointed with his presence to bring about the salvation that you've been waiting for. So that's the context there. Simeon is waiting to see the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's Christ. So what does he see? Well, very clearly in the text, you can see it. He takes the child Jesus in his arms. Now, on the one hand, we have to admit that what he saw with his eyes was very different from what he saw with the eyes of faith in his heart. Because here he was looking at a, a little baby, like probably not more than a few weeks old. Not very impressive, and not just a, not just a small, very small person, but a poor person, a, a, a child of poor people. Because in, in the text, you see that Joseph and Mary had to offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, the reason why that, that's significant in the, in the text is because that particular offering was a concession to be brought by people that were especially poor. So people that were maybe a little bit more wealthy, a little more well-off, uh, had to bring uh, a lamb or a goat. But if you couldn't afford that, then you could at least bring a couple birds as a sacrifice of, of thanksgiving for this the gift of the child, which is what Mary and Joseph were doing. And that indicates that they were really low class, like they, they didn't, they couldn't afford much. And so as Simeon holds this baby in his arms, he's not holding the child of royalty. He's holding the child of poverty. A little person in his arms, that's what he sees. Okay, but when he sees that little child, he sees more than a little poor baby. Because he's looking at this child with the eyes of faith. And, he, and notice what he says. In verse, in verse 30. My eyes have seen your salvation. What Simeon recognizes is that in this baby, in this baby, are all the promises of God realized, come to pass. And he takes us on faith. He believes this to be true. And what Simeon says after this reveals to us more and more about what kind of person this is. And I'm just going to walk through a few, of these, a few of these facts that are revealed to us in Simeon's song and in Simeon's uh, word to, his, uh, to Mary and Joseph. First of all, Simeon realizes that salvation is a person. Salvation is a person. So he's looking at this little person and he's saying, to this, about this person, my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, we've, we've talked about this before, that salvation, it, it, within Christianity, the Christian's view of salvation is that salvation is not simply something that God does for us. Salvation is God himself. 
Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. I mean, people, when they adore God, when they look to God, they refer to God as my salvation. When Simeon is looking at this little baby, he says, this is salvation. Salvation is a person. Now, this sets Christianity apart from every other worldview, every other religion. Why? Because every other worldview, every other religion is always pointing to something you must subscribe to or a set of practices that you must do as the way to salvation. The founders of all these religions are saying, here's the way, go do that. Or here's a set of, of, of truths, learn these. But only in Christianity is salvation found in a person, and that is Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world. You see, for our salvation, God doesn't merely point to something else and says, now if you could do that, if you can try hard enough, if you can check enough moral boxes, if you can expend enough effort, then you'll achieve salvation. No, he comes to us and he says, I am your salvation. That's what Christianity is. It's salvation not in a set of practices, not merely in a set of beliefs, although Christianity does involve practices and beliefs, but these are the fruit, not the root of it. Christianity at its very heart is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ, who comes to us in his grace and mercy and love. The best way that I can illustrate that is with something that I've, an illustration that I've used before, and that is, uh, th those of you who are, have been parents of young children gotta know what this is like, where you put your kid to bed, and, and you close the door, and you walk away, and then you hear that voice calling for you. It's like, Mommy, and you open the door, you're like, Okay, what do you need? I'm thirsty. Can I have a drink? Okay, here's a drink. Get him a drink. All right, go back to sleep now. All right, you, you go, you, you shut the door. You, you go back and do your thing, and then pretty soon you hear the voice again. Mommy! <laughs> okay, you're trying to be sweet. Open the door. What do you need? I'm cold. Could I have a blanket? Okay, here's another blanket. You put it over them. You tuck it under their chin. They're nice and cozy. You warm enough? Yeah. You don't need a drink anymore? No, I'm, I'm fine. Okay, now go to sleep now. You go out of the room, you hear a call again, Mommy! Okay, it's all right, I love, the, I love this person. You open the door, you say, what, what do you need? Right. It's really dark in here, can I have a light? Okay, here's a little night light, you plug it in. Is that, okay, you got enough light, it's not scary in here, you're warm, you don't need a drink. Okay, you're fine, why don't you just close your eyes, go to sleep. You leave the room, you hear it again, Mommy! You come back in the room. What do you need? Mommy, I need you. <laughs> you know, at, at some point, it's not just the blanket. It's not just the drink of water. It's not just the light. I mean, the, the blanket, the drink of water, the light, they, they, maybe they were all just excuses to get mom in the room. <laughs> because what the kid really wants is mom. And without mom's presence, the light in the room, the drink, the blanket, all those mean less... This just is an illustration of the way that God, what God is to us. What we really need, what we really need is not all these gifts that God can give us because without the presence of God, all these things ring hollow. What we need is God himself. That's why salvation is the Lord. That's why when, when Simeon looks at this little baby and realizes that this baby is the culmination of God's promises, Emmanuel, God with us, he's holding in his arms the salvation of God. Why? Salvation is in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ.
And this sets Christianity apart from every other way of life, from every other religion, from every philosophy and worldview. Salvation is found in a person. But now this not only makes Christianity distinct from every other philosophy, religion, and worldview, but it also tells us a great deal about the Christian life. And that is the Christian life is loving communion with God himself. What does it mean to live as a Christian? You may say, well, I'm going to church. Well, I'm, I read my Bible. Well, I pray. Very good. But at its heart, at the core of it, being a Christian cannot be reduced to a set of practices. It is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And not only, not only does, does salvation being a person define what it means to be a, a Christian, but it also defines what Christian growth is, what it means to grow as a Christian. You may say, but I, I read my Bible more, but I attend church more, but I, I give more. Anybody could do those things, my friends. But to grow as a Christian is to be deepened in your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what Christian growth is. The question I have for you, my believing brothers and sisters, is not whether you're going to church more often, not whether you're reading your Bible more frequently, although I hope you're doing that. It is this. Is your love for Jesus growing? Are the, the coals of, of your heart, are they burning hot with, with affection and adoration for your Lord Jesus Christ, or have you let them grow cold? Looking back last year, Christmas of 2021, or Christmas of 2020, can you say that, that your affection and your love for Jesus is, is warmer, is intensified since then? Are you growing spiritually, my friend? That's what I want to know. Because that, that intensity, that growth uh, in your relationship with, with Jesus Christ, that is what it means to be a growing and flourishing Christian. Salvation is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. It sets Christianity apart from every worldview, philosophy, and religion. It defines what it means to live as a Christian, what it means to grow as a Christian. But there's another point of, of application that I want to draw out from this, and that is that the fact that salvation is a person and that person is Jesus Christ, and that to grow as a Christian is to grow in your relationship with that person, that, those set of facts, helps you understand the trials that you're going through right now. Let me explain. Could it be that the reason, or one of the reasons your power went out this past couple days, if it did, or that some trial that you're walking through right now, could it be that the reason God has allowed this is to draw you closer to him? Could it be that the reason why he allowed you to go through the stress and strain that you're going through right now could be because he wants to hear you pray more often? It could be that you've never prayed more often than you ever have in your life until now because now you're facing a trial you never thought you could face before. And it has been the very drawing near to God that God has been trying to bring about in your life. That's why he's been doing it. You, you think it's all about the relationship with this other person. You think it's all about the financial strain. You think it's all about the coldness of your house. You may think it's all about this or that. But maybe it's all about God crowding you to himself. Can, can you draw closer to God even in your trials? Absolutely, because in your trials, God is hearing your voice crying out to him and saying, Lord, I need you. See, that's the purpose of your trials. 
Those are the purpose. That's the reason why God has brought this into your life, to make you more like Jesus Christ, to hug you tighter in his embrace. That's what your heavenly father does. Why? Why? Because salvation is a person. And to live as a Christian is to live in loving relationship with that person. And so you can see all your trials, all your stresses, all your anxieties from that perspective. God is using these things to move me step by step, stage by stage, closer to him so that I depend on him more intensely, with, with greater affection, so I know his heart more. Christianity, my friends, is a person. Salvation is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, this salvation is a person, and that's the first sub-point under what Simeon saw. Boy, we're moving along slowly here. I think it's worth it, though. It's going to speed up. Salvation is a person. This person, though, Simeon says, is for everyone. So look at verse 31. My eyes have seen your salvation. He's looking at baby Jesus, recognizing this to be his salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And then Simeon names two kinds of peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, that's anybody who's not a Jew, and for glory to your people Israel, that's the Jews. So he, he names both Jews and Gentiles and says, this salvation is for anybody, not just Jews, not just Gentiles. And I, I actually think that this is what surprised Mary and Joseph most of all, Be, because it was hard for the descendants of Abraham, that is the, the Jews, to grasp the fact that what God was doing was bigger than just the nation of Israel. What God was doing was a worldwide, on a worldwide scale. What God was doing through Jesus Christ was to draw not just the descendants of Abraham, but the descendants of every human being that lived upon the face of the earth to himself to offer salvation to them. See, this person in whom is salvation is for everybody, Jews and Gentiles. Now, my friends, I think it's very important for us to recognize this. Because it's easy for us to get really narrow-minded about who Jesus is for. We can, we can so focus on the fact that Jesus is for me and my family and the people that look and act and think like I do and fail to recognize that Jesus is doing things all over this little globe that we often have no idea about. Do you realize that what started as a little offshoot of Judaism in the first century has now become a worldwide movement that continues to grow at an astonishing rate all over the world? You see, and, and, and the, according to the best statistics I could find, back in the year 1900, 80% of the world's Christians lived in Europe and North America. 80% of the Christians of the world were just on two continents, Europe and North America. But today, nearly 70% of the world's Christians live in, does anybody know? Africa. And Christianity is growing the fastest in some Middle Eastern countries. There are more Christians on the continent of Africa than there are Christians in the United States of America. Christianity is growing most rapidly among third world countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. See, in our little corner in the northeast of the United States, it's really easy for us to get so narrow-minded about this thing. Well, I guess everything that Jesus is doing has to, is right here in Concord, New Hampshire, maybe a few towns surrounding, maybe in New Hampshire. But my friends, Christ is Lord all over this world. 
And people are coming to him, and people are realizing that salvation is Jesus Christ. See, the words that Simeon said, a light for the Gentiles has been fulfilled over the course of these two millennia because people all over the world are seeing the light. This is what, how Zechariah ended his song. He said, there's a dawning. It's like the morning that's breaking across the dim horizon, and the dawning of this light is shooting its, its beams of, of uh, light across, all across this world. There is not a second that goes by that the sun is not shining upon some Christian group gathering for prayer. Some little knot of believers somewhere recognizing that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's all over the world. Jesus, this person, Jesus Christ, is for everybody. So in this, we see the, the, the width the, the breadth, the expanse of, of Jesus, this, this, our salvation. But we also should note the depth of his heart for people. The, the, when Simeon says, a light for revelation of the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel, he speaks of the heart that Jesus has to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus gives this parable about himself, comparing himself to a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and then notices as he brings them into the fold one night that there are only 99 that passes into that doorway. And so he goes out and he looks for that one lost sheep. Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. This person that Simeon is holding in his arms, this little poor person, <laughs> is the Christ. Salvation. For everybody. Now, this person, salvation is a person. This person is for everybody. But we should also note what he says about Jesus to Mary and Joseph. Look at verse 33, 34 rather. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's almost as if Simeon turns to them and says, even though this little baby is going to be a light for the Gentiles and glory for the people Israel, you should know that this, this one will be opposed. And the work of Jesus Christ, particularly his work on the cross, will bring a pain in right into Mary's heart. A sword will pierce your own heart also. But what he says about Jesus is very interesting. He says that this person divides humanity. This person divides humanity. So look, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. What does he mean by this? He means that Jesus is going to divide people. Now you might be thinking, I don't like that. I, I like to think about Jesus uniting people. And I'll say this, Jesus does unite people. Jesus unites people across all kinds of boundaries. He brings together the rich and the poor, the black and the white, all races, all socioeconomic uh, classes. He brings people together. He unites people. But there is another sense in which Jesus divides. What's the nature of this division? Well, Simeon says, for the rise and for the fall and rising of many of Israel. See, Simeon is making an allusion to the Old Testament in which God, particularly God's coming to human beings, is, is compared to a rock. And there are a couple things that can be done with a rock. You can trip over a rock and hurt yourself. 
or you can build your life on that rock. So what Simeon is saying is this. The coming of Jesus is going to be like that rock on which some people will stumble and some people will rise. Some people cannot accept the fact that this human being who is fully God and fully man, who he is and what he did, some people cannot accept the fact that this is God's salvation. Why? Because they're too proud. Because they refuse to admit it. Because they're offended by the message of the cross. And yet there are others who realize their need. There are others who realize that's exactly the kind of Savior that I need. One who would go to such depth for me. One who can suffer and die on the cross for me. And for those who are willing to recognize that, oh, it is a rising. It is, that is what it means to build your life on the rock, on Jesus Christ. So Jesus divides between those who believe and those who disbelieve. For those who are humble enough to accept that he is salvation and for those who refuse to believe it. All humanity, from beginning to end, has been divided between this, faith and unbelief. Rejecting God's offer, receiving God's offer. And this is what the gift of God's Son reveals to us. When God gives us Jesus, he gives us a Savior, just the Savior we need, but often not the Savior we think we need. You see, Jesus' work on the cross, by dying on a cross, reveals to us that our condition is worse than we ever imagined because it took the death of Jesus to solve our problem. That is a very humbling realization. In order to receive that kind of gift, you have to be willing to admit how deeply flawed you are. It'd be kind of like, and I heard this illustration recently, so it's not unique to me, but it'd be kind of like if for Christmas, when I start opening my presents, I open a present, and it's like a year's supply of deodorant. Like, oh, thanks, I guess. I open the next present, present, and it's like a year's supply of Rogaine or, you know, some, something to get rid of your balding. Like, okay. I open the, I open the next present, it's like a toothbrush and, and toothpaste. What are you trying to say, people? You're saying that I'm, I'm, I'm balding, my breath stinks, and I smell bad. <laughs> In or, if I'm going to accept those gifts, I'm also admitting something about myself. My, my friends, if you're going to accept the gift of Jesus, God's Son, who came to this earth to die on a Roman cross for you, you are also accepting that your condition is far worse than you ever imagined. It's this bad. You are separated from God, dead in your trespasses and sins, without any hope in this world, but you also are accepting something that is worth dancing over and rejoicing in, and that is your far more love than you ever dared hope. You are, you are so loved that God did send his son for you, that God did give himself for you. Oh, that is love worth rejoicing in. That is a present worth receiving, but it is this gift. It is the gift of Jesus that divides all of humanity. Some will fall, others will rise. And this person will reveal your thoughts about him. Look at this in verse 35. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. My friends, this is what you must consider this morning. What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? What are these thoughts? These are thoughts about who Jesus is. Consider with me. 
What do you think about Jesus in his life? His showing compassion to people, his working miracles, his teaching. What do you think about Jesus in his death? What do you think about his crucifixion? What do you think about it? Was it for you? Was it for somebody else? Was it real? What do you think about Jesus in his resurrection? Do you believe that he did rise from the dead? Is that a fact that you're willing to admit? If you're willing to admit that fact, you must also admit that he is the king of, over life because he conquered death. And you must also admit that his death was not because he was a criminal, but because you and I are so deeply flawed. What do you think about that? Your thoughts are being revealed right now. They're being revealed to yourself, and they're being revealed to God. I've had people, multiple people over the years tell me in response to my preaching, in response to others preaching, that they were convinced that the preacher was reading their email or had their house bugged or something. How could that preacher know the kinds of things I was saying to my wife or the sort of argument that we had or the sort of things I've been thinking? Here is the power of God's word. It's like a key that unlocks the, the cabinet of your heart and, and shows what kind of person you are based upon what you're thinking about Jesus. What are you thinking about Jesus this morning? Do you believe him to be your savior? The fountain of your joy, the source of your peace, the one who lived and died and rose again for you. If that's what you think, my friends, serve him with all your heart. But if you're not willing to believe that yet, why? Why aren't you accepting that? Is it because of your, you're afraid that he's going to put certain demands upon your life that you're not, you're not sure you can submit to? Oh, are you afraid to follow the reasoning? If Jesus rose from the dead, that must mean that he is the king of all, and if he's the king of all, I must submit to him. Are you afraid of that? If so, what do you have to fear? That you're going to have to give up something in your life that is contradicting that king's desire for you will know that that something is doing nothing good for you but only harming you. So what that king wants to do is to shatter those, bra those, those chains and snap those fetters so that you can be free of that. You have nothing to fear with Jesus as your savior. You have nothing to fear that he's going to ask for something from you that's too precious for you. Oh, whatever that is, it must be something that's weighing you down, not something that's raising you up. So come to Jesus and believe in him. My friend, I don't know why God brought you here on this Christmas morning, but maybe it was to hear this message, that Jesus can save you. And you need to hear that message. It's the most urgent decision you'll ever make. What do you think about my Jesus? If you believe that he died on the cross, and if you believe that he rose from the dead, here's what you must think about him. You must think that he is your Savior, because he must love you so to do that for you. Would you cry out to him? Would you confess the innermost secrets of your soul to him as if he didn't already know it? Yes, he does. He came to this earth because he loves you and he wants you to trust and follow him. That's why he came. He is salvation. He divides all of humanity. He separates the believers from the unbelievers. And in the end, as Jesus would tell a parable in his earthly ministry, he will separate, as it were, the sheep from the goats. And say to one another, to one set, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, and to the other group, enter into the joy of your master. What will he say to you? It'll depend on this, this life. What did you think of Jesus? Did you see him as salvation, or did you see him as some wispy, far-off, mythical character that people now use to leverage their religious authority over, over others? That's not what he is. That's not who he is. He is the Savior of the world. And he can be your savior if you trust in him. That's what Simeon saw.
Now, why did it bring him peace? My second point isn't going to be as long as my first. It brought him peace simply because he believed. This is not a kind of this is not kind of a vague, objectless belief. This is belief in the promises of God. He took God at his word that this little baby in his arms was the culmination of all God's promises, and he believed just like you can believe. That's why it brought him peace. Do you have peace this morning, my friend? We talk a lot about peace at Christmas time. But maybe you don't have peace at all. Maybe you have anxiety. Maybe you have worry. Maybe you have turmoil. You can have peace too. Romans 5.1 says, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace begins by having being at peace with God. And from your peace with God can flow like a cascading waterfall, all the peace that you need into every other part of your life. The peace that you're struggling with in a relationship right now, the peace that you're struggling with in your heart right now about things that are going on, you can have the peace of God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. I'll invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Can I talk to you just a moment while your heads are bowed and your eyes closed? are closed? In a moment, we are going to uh, we have one baptism. Giuseppe is getting baptized. He gave a testimony earlier, and then we're going to be dismissed. But before we do, would you carefully consider what I opened with the story about my friend Sam? He was expressing the kind of peace that he had even at his deathbed. And he said to his sister in that video, Pray that God can use this moment to show how big God is. Maybe God is doing something in your life. He wants you to see how big he is. He wants you to see that he ought to be the the one focus and object of all your attention. He deserves it. Would you give it to him? And if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ to be your king and your savior, what are you waiting for? You can do it now. You can do it in your seat. You can cry out to him. If you need help, talk to one of us. Talk to somebody who brought you so they can help you pray and receive Christ. And my friend, you've done that if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and there's a situation right now that you you don't have peace about. You can give that to Christ too. Our Father, I pray that you would take these words, seal them to our hearts. May they bring about such a harvest larger than any that I could by my own words muster up because your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. May it bring about great fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.